This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 21st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. How do rules work? Quite often, not particularly well. And the reasons why are manifold. So when governments craft policy, make rules, Cato's Deidre McCloskey says those rules are often better discovered than imposed. We talked about the general difficulty of policy earlier this month. Governments make rules. They make laws. They make policy. And humans often will look at policy, as David Letterman used to say, tra- it's, you know, it's like traffic laws in New York. They're really just rough guidelines. Right. Advisory. <laughs> and you, know, you, you suggested this discussion to me, and I thought it reminds me of this line from Robert Anton Wilson, one of the, the great writers that everyone should read. Blue uniforms are real, but police... That's a social fiction. Absolutely. And, and, and so when, when you think about uh, governments making rules and saying, oh, well, we're gonna, here's what we're going to We're going to scrupulously enforce this new rule, and that, that will solve this social problem that we face. Well, you know, there, there are all kinds of problems with this statist belief that we, if there's a problem, mama and papa state will intervene sweetly and solve it. That's been a a stronger and stronger assumption, I think, in the modern world over the last century or so. 200 years ago, the average citizen knew very well that the kings and dukes in charge of them were interested in their own self-interest, in having nice palaces and fighting interesting wars. They knew that. Everyone knew that, and everyone said, oh, well, I guess that's the way the world is. Since the 19th century and this, this conviction that we, we should have, and I think we should have, governments by, for, and of the people, we keep being persuaded by politicians that they've got this way of doing things that's really good. And as you point out, you can have the police in Rome enforcing the rules on pedestrians and the police in Berlin enforcing the rules on pedestrians and get com- have the same rules and completely different outcomes. In Rome, they jaywalk. In Berlin, if, I'm, if you jaywalk, an old lady with an umbrella will attack you. There are Italian ways of doing this and German ways of doing this. And they're, so that's one problem that Enforcement, look, enforcement of most laws has to be voluntary or it doesn't work. It's a long-standing finding in the sociology of business that contractual law, law of contracts, is very seldom called upon. You never take people to court, almost never. Mainly these rules that look very nice in in law books, are enforced inside the business world. Good old George, yeah, he didn't fulfill his contract, but he's basically a good guy, and we want to do business with him in the future. So there's that problem. But, you know, it's more or less endless there. It's one problem after another with this idea that the state will provide. So when policymakers sit down to make plans... 
it, it seems like there, there ought to be a sort of checklist that they go along and and go through to say, you know, we need to understand precisely how this is going to fail. Yeah, and and they often don't. I mean, the, anyone who knows anything about Congress or any of our free institutions, and I, I support them and I want them to succeed, knows that it's like watching sausage being made. They're not methodical. Now, we have institutions on institutions, so to speak, the Congressional Budget Office, for example, that try to bring a sense of cost and benefit into the making of laws. But, you know, there's a view of law that strikes me as very sensible, which is law should be found, not made. The problem is that we think we're, we're all social engineers and we all believe that we'll just make 100 laws a year, 300, 1,000. Boy, that's a great Congress. It's made 1,000 new laws. And, and in fact, people point to that they typically do. as a measure of productivity I do. in I Congress. I do. They're very proud. I'm fond of saying that the worst invention in modern history is air conditioning because it allowed the Congress of the United States to work over the summer in Washington. So finding the laws that people, ordinary people, already want and have, the business about old George, he's a nice guy, or, or uh, gee, I, I don't think people should cross the street in, 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 I'm a German, I don't think they should cross in the middle of the block, and so forth. Finding them is a more humane and sensible approach to law, law giving. Now, all this is aside from the well-known corruptions in the making of laws. We're a, we here at Cato, we're one block from K Street. And, and I find that wonderfully symbolic that we, the enemies of, of, of crony capitalism, are one block away from where they do it. That's one problem. But And then, of course, with the best intention in the world, complete honesty, a bunch of saints in Washington or Springfield or wherever they are, they don't know. This is a point that Hayek made and, and is generally ignored by most, well, by all statists, which is, how do I know? How would I, a thousand miles away, know that the little grocery store that opened up in my old neighborhood of Chicago across the street was going to succeed? How could I possibly know it? How could the city government of Chicago know? So there's the knowledge problem, as as Hayek expressed. Now, a couple of notable things. One, you're talking about law being discovered and why that is important. And, and, and part of that is what the enforcement mechanisms are, right? And so when I am hanging out with my kids and you know, I'm, I'm splitting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich between the two of them, two of the three, it's the I cut you choose. That's, that's, a, that's a good rule. And it's a it's a good rule because all the interested parties are at the table and all the interested parties are very interested in an equitable outcome because if you cut the sandwich inequitably, well, the, the kid who didn't cut the sandwich picks the bigger half. Exactly. They, they, by the way, that precise mechanism is used for what's known as partible inheritance when in, in instead of the 
oldest male getting the entire farm, they split the farm. Sometimes they just sell the farm and split the money, but they split the farm. And the way they do it in Greece, for example, in earlier times, they would form little farms out of the big farm and say, well, now this one gets the mill, this one gets the lake, this one gets this. And then having decided on these things, they then allow people to choose which sandwich they want. That's why it's so important to find the procedures. And by the way, it's my experience that raising children is a very good lesson in how to ruin a little society. Because now it's it's essentially a top-down autocracy, I have to admit. But the but it also brings to mind the sometimes the pointlessness of having a rule. Well, that's right. That's right. You see, or it, actually, that's an excellent example because when I was a child, I'm very old. My mom would say on Saturday morning at eight in the morning, "Go out and play. Come back when the streetlights come on." Now, if you say that, the state has intervened. If you do that, you will get child protection at your door the next day. Say. You allowed your child to go out and play. You didn't carry them in your car to the ballet lesson or the soccer thing and schedule their Saturday all day long. You just let them play with each other and learn how to be human beings not under supervision. And that's how we played. If we wanted to play baseball, someone had a bat, other person had a couple of gloves and someone had a ball and we went and played baseball. Now you have to have a league and, and so forth. So there's, a, there's an impulse to plan. This is another of the numerous problems with, with statism and this idea that mama and papa state will take care of things. Planning is good. In, in a family, we try to plan, don't we? Who's going to make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? What, when, how, when, when does school start, et cetera? Of course you have to plan. But anyone with any sense knows in their own life, in their family life, and in the life of their, their, their community, that the plans often don't work out. Bobby Barnes said, the best laid schemes of mice and men gone off the glay, which means don't work. Making a lot of rules. The Federal Register, which contains all the rules, of the federal government that it imposes on us and itself is very, very long. I mean, it's millions of <laughs> rules long. The new constitution in Chile that was actually turned down by, the, by, the, by vote had something like 500 clauses, whereas our constitution or the Declaration of the Rights of Man France in the in the 1790s, both of them were very short. So short, general rules, and then let people do stuff. Richard Epstein says a good rule is one that facilitates many transactions. He's right. He's a great thinker on this point. And he's actually the one who pointed me to this notion of found rules rather than enacted rules. It sounds wonderful. We're going to because we're going to socially engineer everything. We're going to lay down the future. We're going to plan, and you don't need to worry because the government... You know, that's one of the problems with macroeconomic policy. 
that's among the many parts of policy that don't work for many good reasons, among which is corruption and ignorance. But there's a third one. If anyone was so smart as to be able to predict and steer the macroeconomy of the United States, why are they telling you? <laughs> why don't they go make a fortune on their wonderful knowledge, I don't know, of the turning point of the business cycle? As an economist, you're always being asked at cocktail parties, what's going to happen to interest rates? Oh, no, wait a second. If I knew what was going to happen to interest rates, there are financial instruments that are quite secure that you can insure against and hedge against that would make me an unlimited fortune. I would own a damn Caribbean island if I knew which way the interest rate, what was going to happen to interest rates. So that's the third reason. It's not just ignorance, inability to do it, or corruption, knowing that you're doing a bad thing and, boy, you shouldn't do it, but there is K Street. But that if these wizards, these masters of the universe, actually had this, this ability to run the Federal Reserve or whatever, it's a contradiction in their own theory that they're able to do it, but they're not multimillionaires. Even at the micro level, and your point about macroeconomics is is well taken, but even at the micro level, which we could extrapolate up to the macro economy, it's the things that make markets work so well, the the innovation, the ideas, the marginal changes that, that we adopt in order to improve our own lot are the same reasons that rules typically often fail, because we're going to think about the best way to either comply with the letter of the law and and skirt it or or come up with a solution that's like, I know this is unenforceable and I don't need to comply. That's an excellent point, which I hadn't ever th thought of before. And I should. I'm an economist. We're trained to say supply and demand every time we come to a problem. And what you're saying is that there's, so to speak, a demand side of the law, you could call it. I don't care if you call it supplier demand, but it's the other side. How the people impacted by the law behave, how they react. I've been focusing so far on the three problems with the suppliers of the law. But you're right. The, the demanders, as it were, the customers, you might call them, of the law, the people who have to do it, they too have their own behaviors. And as I said at the beginning about Italians and Germans, they're two very different approaches to the law. I have a friend who's lived in Italy for many years. He's an Englishman. And he wrote a book about the train system in Italy. And one of his points was that Italians cheat on the fare all the time. They view it as a game. And there are other effects on that, let's call it the demand side. If you, for example, if you close down free speech, closing the newspapers, say, as Erdogan's done in Turkey, then the conversation of the society, which is productive in all kinds of ways, social, political, economic, is closed down. It's closed down. It stops. Actually, that's the problem with the Russian army. Everything's hierarchical. Every sergeant, every lieutenant has to consult up the chain before doing anything. 
It's why, incidentally, it's an interesting fact, the German army in the First and Second World War, I was saying the Germans are very law-abiding, but <laughs> the German army in the First and Second World War was punched way above its weight precisely because the German soldiers, especially the non-commissioned officers, and indeed the, the top generals, both of them, were very good at thinking up new things. Their new situation, bang, they suddenly go off in another direction, whereas the French army, a much freer society, was crippled by its inability to innovate. So again, when we go back to policymakers crafting rules, you know, economists like to say do nothing is always an option. Some of them like to say it. Some of the others like to say, oh, let's find out another rule to counteract the effect of the six other rules we've made just a while ago. You are sort of alluding to it. New rules are often just sheet metal on a ship. That's the trouble. There's a, there's a concept in economics, which I think is a very good idea, a very good sort of point. It's called second best. And it says, look, if you got a bunch of follow-ups of one sort or another, because partly because you've passed laws before or just spontaneously because the weather is bad, then the next rule you make will often not be the one that you would make if you hadn't done all of those screw-ups before. So let's take the, the American health care system, which is a layered phyllo dough, layers of phyllo dough construction of the state-protected and sponsored monopolies, one after another. I mean, the drug companies are only one of them, the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, blah, 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 blah. everyone's a monopolist. In that case, extracting the sensible supply and demand equilibrium, so to speak, in, in medicine, in this terrible system where you put so many rules on it that you can know up from down, and that's the trouble. So you overinvest in some kinds of medical equipment and procedures, underinvest in others, and so forth. And this interacts, by the way, with the legal system in a nasty way, especially in the United States. Deirdre McCloskey is a distinguished scholar and Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute we spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 